It's June 30th, 2021, and Hamant Mishra is watching his 12-year-old son, Abi, play a chess tournament in Hungary. It's the middle of the pandemic, and there are fewer tournaments than usual. So they've flown from their home in New Jersey to Europe to play. In fact, for eight, nine months, he could not play a single tournament. You see Hamant and his son, Abi? They're on a time-sensitive mission. Abi is attempting to beat a 19-year-old world record to become the youngest chess grandmaster in history. Just because he was chasing this record, he, he non-stop played for 75 days, almost one game a day. They only have a few months to get this title. Every game counts, and they can't afford to make any mistakes. He was playing back-to-back tournaments, so he was not getting enough break. It was silent in the hall, except for the quiet, rhythmical taps of chess pieces being moved around the board. Abi was exhausted. He was staring at all of the pieces on the board. Everything he had worked for, for the past seven years, was resting on his ability to fight this fatigue and concentrate on outsmarting each opponent put before him. And then, he won. I think it's difficult to describe that feeling. We were very happy. I could not sleep all night. Abi had beaten the record by two months. His family, they were overjoyed. The chess community was buzzing, and everyone was celebrating this achievement. Now to a remarkable story of a young talent who is wise beyond his years and has all the right moves on the chessboard. Someone who is definitely showing signs of greatness is Abhimanyu Mishra. But then, a couple of weeks after the tournament, an article came out that called the win into question. They just wanted some kind of a breaking news, some nonsense. The article pretty much said that there was suspicion around whether Heyman had paid money to tweak the timing, opposition, and schedule of his son's matches. That maybe they had cheated. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheat, a series that asks the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? The game of chess originated in India and Iran, and over thousands of years, it made its way around the world. It's the kind of game that you play when you go visit your granddad. Or you can often see older folks playing it in the park. And that's the way it was in the professional chess world for a while. It was pretty much older players with years of experience and mad skills competing against each other. But in the mid-1980s, everything changed. Kids started playing. And they got pretty good, too. Teenagers were becoming grandmasters. And these grandmasters were getting younger and younger. Suddenly, there were 12-year-old chubby-cheeked chess extraordinaires everywhere you look. But it's got to make you wonder a little bit. How did all this change? Was it because kids got more clever all of a sudden? Sure, there are probably quite a few chess genius kids out there just like the little girl in the Queen's Gambit having visions of chessboards on the ceiling. That one moves up and down, or back and forth, all the way if there's space to move in. But that doesn't account for just how many kids became grandmasters. What if their success doesn't just come down to their skills? What if some of it can be attributed to their parents being willing to do anything and everything to help their kids succeed? I am Nigel Short. I am a chess grandmaster, former world championship finalist. I am 
vice president of the International Chess Federation, FIDE. Nigel has been playing chess since he was five years old. When I was five years old, I was, what was I doing at five? Like I was riding go-karts <laughs> in the streets. But this guy, Nigel, in 1984, he was 19 when he became the youngest grandmaster in the world. That was an achievement at the, at the time. Uh, nowadays, um, in chess, if you're 19 and you're not a grandmaster, I mean, you're basically on the, on the scrap heap. 19 on the scrap heap? Well, damn. I guess there's no point in me starting a chess career now. Grandmaster is the highest title in chess, apart from that of world champion. As you can imagine, you got to be pretty good to become a grandmaster. You need a rating of at least 2,600. And to put that into perspective, a beginner might have a rating of 800 or below. You get a better rating by winning more matches. But the rating alone isn't enough. You also need to get something called norms. Yeah, it's a weird chess term for basically beating the best at the best tournaments. So here's the thing about these tournaments. They have to fit a very strict criteria. There must be at least three grandmasters from different countries playing at these tournaments. Which basically means that to become a grandmaster, you have to play a lot of games against other grandmasters at a very high level. And once you become a grandmaster, you're one for life. I think if you go back to the 1970s, the sort of early 1970s, there were maybe 100, something like that. But in the 80s, something changed. Nowadays, there are literally thousands of grandmasters, something like 1,700. There's been a massive explosion. And that explosion of grandmasters was caused by one man. Florencio Campomanes became FIDE president in 1982. And remember, FIDE is the International Chess Federation. And as president, Florencio wanted people all over the world to play chess. So he came up with a plan to expand. He had this idea that uh, each country should have a grandmaster. And of course, that can only be achieved in two different ways. Either you raise the standards absolutely all over the world of the players, or you lower the requirements. And guess which one of those is easier to <laughs> achieve? And as you probably guessed, they relax the rules by making it easier to get a norm. Remember, it's that thing you get if you beat really high-level players in tournaments. So, it's no surprise, suddenly more and more players were becoming grandmasters. Players who weren't good enough to get a grandmaster title before, but could under the new regulations. And these new players were getting younger too. One of the younger players who had their eyes on a grandmaster title was a kid named Sergei Karyakin. Sergei was born in Crimea and had been playing chess since he was five. He was a prodigy. He worked hard, too. By age five, he was playing six hours a day. And eventually, his defensive skills in chess had earned him the nickname the Minister of Defense. Kind of clever, I guess. In 2003, at just 12 years and seven months old, Sergei was competing in a tournament in Ukraine. And yeah, I know adding the seven months to his age may seem specific, but it'll make sense later. 
If he got the norm in this tournament, it would make him the youngest grandmaster in history. Back in England, Nigel was paying close attention to Sergey. I had a weekly column in the Sunday Telegraph, and normally I'd have a bit of text, and then I'd put a game in. Nigel was planning to ask Sergey about his best match from the tournament so he could include it in his column. He was playing, uh, yeah, I think there were some Russians, some Ukrainians. But things weren't going quite to plan in the tournament for Sergey. Sergey hadn't won enough matches to get his Grandmaster title. His dream of being the youngest ever Grandmaster was slipping away from him. But then, Sergey found a way to get it together. And after one final match that only lasted a few minutes, he set the world record. A Grandmaster at the age of 12. And of course, Nigel wanted to talk to him, so he reached out to Sergey for his newspaper column. I said, oh, congratulations, very well done. And, you know, what was your best game from this event? And he just told me this rubbish game, which was, you know, full of mistakes, and eventually he won the game. And I was surprised because it was a poor quality game, and I didn't want to stick that in the Sunday Telegraph. It makes sense that Nigel was a little confused. I mean, why wouldn't Sergey want to show off about his amazing game he'd just played? So... Nigel went off to do his own research into the tournament, and he found something bizarre. This absolutely brilliant game. And I was just thinking to myself, why on earth didn't he mention this? You know, he's made this sort of double-piece sacrifice, winning in brilliant style. So Sergei plays this amazing and incredible game, but he kept it from Nigel. It didn't make any sense. And it was at that moment it occurred to me the reason he may be telling me this was because the game where he won in brilliant style hadn't been played at all, or the results had already been arranged in advance. Nigel sat with his research, and it all pointed to one conclusion. Sergei had cheated. That's coming up after the break. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Nigel had been doing some digging into the tournament where 12-year-old Sergei Karyakin had set a world record and was now the youngest grandmaster in history. It had some very strange name. It was something like the tournament for obtaining <laughs> Sergei Karyakin's grandmaster title. It, had some, it, was, it was something ridiculous. Like, like that. I mean, it, it wasn't very well disguised. Let's, let's put it like that. Not very well disguised is somewhat of an understatement. The tournament for obtaining Sergei Karyakin's Grandmaster title? Damn. Yeah, this ain't looking good. Then rumors started to spread through the chess community. 
Sergei's opponents in the tournament were claiming that Sergei's father had offered them bribes. They were just offered money in order to throw the games. It was said that Sergei's father offered money to multiple players to replay matches and others to draw their games. One player claims he agreed to replay the match for free. If somebody has missed their chance at a Grandmaster norm, they've missed it and you move on to the next tournament. You can't sort of go back and uh, redo it. Otherwise, every, everybody would become a grandmaster this way. You know, I'm unhappy with this game that I played. Uh, I'd like to play it again, thank you very much, you know, until you win it. So, Sergei replayed the game. This time, they played a high-speed variant of chess. Basically, that's when they play the match fast as hell. And that's the match that put Sergei over the edge to win his Grandmaster title. And Nigel soon realized that Sergei was really just the tip of the iceberg. You see, changes in the rules back in the 80s had led to cheating becoming prominent in the chess world. It became an open secret that some of these tournaments were rife with cheating. These became known as Grandmaster Factories. Bulgaria was one place in some parts of the Ukraine. There's one place in Serbia. In these rigged tournaments, there's so many different ways to cheat. But there have been cases, like, for example, where, you know, some results are submitted for an event and they have involved players who have physically been playing in a different country. So it's like their names have been used to fill in a cross table. So you didn't necessarily even need to play a match to win. For the right price, the organizers would fill out the scorecards for you. I know at one time in Ukraine that buying a game typically cost about 30 euros. So, (laughs) you know, you could become a grandmaster very easily for a few hundred euros. Another well-known way of cheating is to pay older grandmasters to participate in a tournament. If you're an organizer, you can choose who to put in these events, of course. You know, one could make it easier for a person to become a grandmaster by choosing elderly or over-the-hill players who still may have a reasonably high rating, which no longer reflects their real strength. So they go recruit and pay for these old dudes who really don't have the juice anymore to play in these tournaments so they can beat them. And right now you're probably asking, yo, it's just a game. I get that people cheat, but why would there be this whole industry of cheating in chess? What's the point? Well, it turns out being a grandmaster actually gets you into places. You get invited to the elite closed-door tournaments with the big boys. Then, of course, there's the money thing. The World Championship final will take place in Dubai in December. It's probably at least a couple of million euros. A couple million euros? Uh, It's kind of starting to make sense to me now. And... There are also commercial sponsorship opportunities. If you're not a GM these days, nobody's nobody's interested in you. So aside from the money, being a grandmaster would set a kid up pretty damn well for the future. 
I mean, what college wouldn't want to recruit a 12-year-old grandmaster? So naturally, these chess dads are keen to help their kids succeed in any way they can. I don't think you can blame somebody uh, who is a child for irregularities, which, if they happened, were clearly the fault of adults. I mean, I can kind of understand it. Family and societal pressure can make you do some pretty crazy things. Everybody wants their kids to succeed in life. So it's not all that surprising to hear allegations that this type of thing was happening again, 19 years later, when a kid in New Jersey named Abby had set his sights on Sergei's record. And people were claiming that there were similarities between how the two got their titles. Some people have insinuated that there was something illegal in what he did. I don't think there's the slightest evidence there was anything illegal in what he did. But gaming the system, absolutely, to the maximum. That's coming up after the break. Hamant Mishra was raising his son in New Jersey when he realized that all the kids around him were addicted to tablets and phones. He didn't want his son falling into the same technology trap. So I wanted to develop some kind of a hobby for him in the early age. His son, Abi, was just two and a half years old when he picked up his first chess piece and five when he started playing tournaments. What is the deal about these five-year-old chess players? But Abi's new hobby wasn't cheap. There's a lot of traveling expenses, tournament fees, and training from Super Grandmasters. Those fees start to add up. And over the course of seven years, Hamant had racked up a bill of about $250,000. It is like paying another home mortgage. Wow. After investing all that money, I can imagine Hamant was praying for a pretty big return. In 2021, Abi competed for his Grandmaster title. He was 12 years, 4 months, and 25 days old, and he intended to break Sergei Karyakin's 19-year-old record. He only had 2 months and 5 days to break it if he wanted to be the youngest grandmaster in history. But it was in the middle of a pandemic, and there were very few tournaments happening, so he and his father flew to Hungary to compete. Abi played 70 games in about 75 days, and after 3 months straight of competitions, he had done it. He was the youngest grandmaster in the history of chess. Everyone was celebrating for Abi. But then an article was published a couple of weeks later that said there was some suspicion around whether Heyman had paid for small advantages like scheduling, opposition, and timing to help his son get the grandmaster title in time. Heyman read the article and was shocked. He says that he only paid the fees that were set by the organizers of the tournament and nothing else. Anybody want to sign up for that event, they have to pay that entry fee. Apart from that, there is nothing. But Nigel, being the vice president of FIDE, had been keeping an eye on the tournament. So he obtained his title by playing a very large number of games in Budapest over a period of time. Those type of events, they are often scheduled according to the, the convenience, actually, of the player who's paying to enter. And the whole scheduling was done basically for his convenience. Now, it's not, not illegal. That is 
using the system to its maximum. So, according to Nigel, Abby didn't cheat, and what he did was legal. But Nigel does think entering tournaments like these is gaming the system. There is a question on whether these things are ethical. Because when you enter tournaments like these, someone else kind of does the dirty work for you. Then the tournament and the tournament organizers look good because they get the glow of the prestige that a grandmaster was born at their tournament. Back in New Jersey, Heyman was none too pleased with this New York Times article. I said that let's have a call and I can explain what was going on. But they made up their mind. Eventually, Heyman started focusing on how he could leverage his son's new title. Because once you've earned one of the highest accolades at 12 years old, where do you go next? Abi could stay in chess or retire at 18 and go to college. It will help you to get into good colleges. So I'm sure that this will help him if he decides to go that route. And let's be honest, Heyman will benefit from Abi's win too. After all, there's big money to be made at the top of the chess game. And Heyman already spent at least a quarter mil on his son's chess career so far. Most parents will do anything to guarantee the success of their children. Some will even go a step further and actually break the rules. Recently, there has been the admission scandal where rich parents were paying to circumvent the college admission system to get their kids into the best universities. The elaborate scheme allegedly involved fake athletic credentials, photoshopping pictures, cheating on standardized tests, and some parents... A lot of parents want to help their kids succeed and have a better life. Take Sergey's parents, for example. They'd become street vendors in Crimea because they were strapped for cash. They uprooted their lives and moved to eastern Ukraine so their son could join the country's most prestigious chess school. Chess was a way out for them. They hoped it would lift them out of poverty and give their son a better life than they had. A life that could earn them millions. After Sergei became a grandmaster, his life changed. He signed contracts that brought him $300,000. He was invited to talk shows. His face was plastered on billboards. He brought home the spoils from competitions, including a BMW i8 and $200,000. Putin even had him in his company. All of this was there for the next generation of chess players and their fathers to see. If you could climb to the top, you could change your life, no matter how you got there. In some ways, parents doing stuff like this for their kids may be instinctual. But it also makes you wonder, if you break the rules, bend them a little bit, circumvent the system, or just outright cheat, at what point have you crossed the line? Hey, folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like Cheat, but better. It's just $2.99 a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next time on Cheat. Thieves light cars on fire in the city 
just distract the police and pull their resources away. And as the police are responding to these car fires, the thieves break in and very cunningly steal exactly what they're looking for. It seems like they're working from a sort of shopping list because there are other more valuable pieces that they leave behind. Hi, this is Mira, one of the producers for Cheat. Just a heads up, we're taking a week off, but we'll be back the week after next with more great Cheat stories. Cheat is written and presented by me, Alzo Slade. This episode was produced by Mira Kumar. The executive producers are Lizzie Jacobs and Tom Koenig. The series editor is Joe Sykes. The original idea for this show was developed by Tom Fuller. Engineering, sound design, and scoring by Martin Peralta. Our design and visual team is Emma Lansdowne and Sarah De La Rue. Special thanks to Steve Ackerman, Mark Rivers, Peggy Sutton, and Ella McLeod.